Some man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. He's strong, listen bud He's got radioactive blood Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man In the chill of night At the scene of a crime Like a flash of light He arrives just in time Spider-Man, Spider-Man Episode 42 for August 2008. The Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast is sponsored by MailOrderComics.com. They have amazing discounts from 38 up to 75% off the cover price of comics and trade paperbacks. An example is the Spider-Man Craven's Last Hunt. It's written by our guest this month, J.M.D. Mateus. The cover price is 20 bucks, and Mail Order has it for $12.39. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com and tell them the Crawl Space sent you. Welcome back to the Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast. I'm honored to have one of my favorite Spider-Man writers on the line, J.M.D. Mateus. I got it right. I've been practicing. J.M., thanks so much for taking time on Saturday to talk to a Spider-Fan. It is a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we'll start at the beginning with your work at Marvel. I was doing my research last night, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was your first book for Marvel the 1977 Marvel Super Special of Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John? Was that your first? It was, I, I, your call was 1980. 1980, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you started with yeah. Xanadu. <laughs> I, started, I started with an adaptation yeah. of a musical. Figure that one out. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Tell me. Of a bad news. Although, although now it's a hit on Broadway, but the movie was like a total stinker, yeah. a total bomb. You know, it's... So, so my, my first work at Marvel was an adaptation of a bad movie <laughs> musical. I mean, that's, uh, well, you know, all I really remember about yeah. it was that I, I, you know, I did the whole script and, and then they told me that they changed the screenplay and I had to rewrite the whole thing <laughs> all over again. Oh, man. And it had like 500 artists and 72 inkers, and you know, it was one of those things. Well, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way up, right? Right. right. But but I did get to see uh, the movie for free, which oh. is, uh, which is not that good, so yeah. it really didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, I, I, it's funny that that was your first book because my that's one of my wife's favorite movies. Oh, that's and, funny. Well, yeah, my wife my wife loves Gene Kelly, yeah. so she has a soft spot in her heart for that. And they movie. just released that movie on DVD like within the last month or two, and it. Well, probably to capitalize on the Broadway show. Yeah, and and it comes with a, a soundtrack in the DVD. So you can put it on your your CD player. So it did come with the adaption for Marvel, unfortunately. <laughs> Fortunate, well, I would say fortunately, not unfortunately. Right. <laughs> so how did how, how did you get the call to do that work? Was that your first mar- official Marvel work? That was, might have been my first Marvel work. I think you know because I was I was I've been doing some work for DC. Okay. Um, that's maybe where the 1977 came in, because at the very, very last weeks of 1977, I sold my very first comic book story, which was to Paul Levitz for House of Mysteries, I think, mm-hmm. and, and had been working on their anthology books and, and, uh, done some, some superhero stuff. In those days, DC had a lot of, a lot of books that were anthologies, even the superhero stuff, so you might, you know, be doing a 10-page Red Tornado story or a 12-page Batman story, so I did a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had samples over at Marvel, and re, uh, Jim Shooter read them and liked them. And I, he, Xanadu was probably my first published work. I think I'd probably done some fill-ins that never saw print before oh. that. But uh, but you know, then one day they called me up about Xanadu, and I think that might be <laughs> the very first published work well, that I did for Marvel after doing a bunch of stuff at DC uh, yeah. before then. Also at DC, I'd done uh, what was it, I Vampire, and uh, the 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 all-time classic Creature Commando. <laughs> Um, there you go, and, and and things like that. But that was it was a actually it was a great way to start uh, to learn to work on those shorter stories because you know now you're just kind of thrown in, and you know hey, why don't you do a six issue, uh, twenty two page each each chapter story? Whereas when you're working on an eight to ten or twelve page story, you really can learn your craft. You can come in and working on those anthology books like House of Mystery and House of Secrets and Time Warp and Mystery in Space and all those books was a great way to work with editors like Len Wein, who was really my first mentor in the business, and really learn the craft. And not a lot of people were watching. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like these were like the top books. Right. 
So you got to just sit there with, within the context of a short story and really learn how to tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end that just ended in one part as opposed to, you know, a 17-page, a 17-part epic. Right. You know? Like, like so maximum was, carnage was, was, years later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, we'll, we'll get to maximum carnage. We'll, we're still starting with the big... Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I I was looking at I think your was it this your first official uh, Spider-Man uh, writing was uh, Marvel Team Up 101 with Nighthawk was that your first Spider-Man? I think it was. Yep. I think it was. Yeah, I think Danny O'Neill was the editor on that, yep. and they they needed a uh, they needed a fill-in or something, and uh, and and that was it. That was it. I know there was another one somewhere in there. I did I dialogued one issue of Amazing Spider-Man over at Danny O'Neill. Plot. It was 223 with the Man Apes, I think. Oh wow! You're well. I, 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 I can't say I pulled that up instantly. I researched it last night. <laughs> Still, I mean, even to figure, even to find that somewhere is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was a you know very early story by me, very early art by John Romita Jr. Yeah. and the Denny O'Neill plot. Yeah. Tell me about the the. Do you have a love for Spider-Man? Do you have you always loved this character? You know, I have to say, I always liked Spider-Man a lot, but I didn't start to love the character until I started to write the character. Right. Some characters you really connect with in the writing. And Peter Parker is such a phenomenal character and such a, a multi-layered character. And really, I think in many ways, the most human uh, uh, of all the superhero characters out there, the most three-dimensional, the most human, and the most relatable. Right. Um, so that it was really in the writing. I mean, I, I loved, I mean, I loved, so I grew up on the, on the Stan Lee, John Romita Spider-Man and, and totally loved mm-hmm. it. But I did, it, you know, it wasn't like I wouldn't put it at the top of my comic book pantheon. You right. Know? But once I started to write the character, that's when I really, really connected with the character. How were you introduced to Spider-Man? Where did you see him? Was it the the uh, '60s cartoon? That's a lot of people got introduced to him. You know, no. When I was in junior high school, there there were uh, there was a big a big Marvel buzz that hit hit, hit my friends in school. <laughs> you know, I was still reading DC, and everyone was like ranting and raving about Marvel. This must have been like in '66 or '67 or something like that, and um, and so I went out and I checked them out. I mean, I, I had been familiar with the Marvel stuff. Strangely enough, the only Marvel comic I ever read regularly before that was Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commando. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, which which is which amazes me because I'm so so against all that, but I loved war comics, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It was your fiction. It was your escapism. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. I guess yeah. so. It was the first place I ever saw Captain America was in was in Sergeant Fury. Yeah. Know? But then I remember going out and, and saying, oh, let me check out all this Marvel stuff. And I think that was the two-parter, mm-hmm. the, the the Green Goblin, when Norman Osborn revealed himself right. uh, as the Green Goblin or vice versa. Right. And I had seen the first issue on the stands and had, had not read it, but I still think it's one of the great comic book covers. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was it was the Green Goblin flying, dragging Peter Parker. You could see bits of his costume, but he was unmasked, you yep. know. And you, you didn't see stuff like that in DC Comics back then. It was, I remember seeing that cover. The great comic book covers, you can look at the covers and you can imagine what the story will be without reading right. it. And sometimes what you're imagining isn't, isn't even what the story is. But, but that, to me, is the mark of a great cover because you see it and your mind starts spinning all sorts of stories. And I guess I finally started reading the book with the second part of that story, which was, I don't know, issue 40 or 41 right. or something like right. that. And so I'm a huge fan of especially that first year of, of, of John Romita stories, which I think are just, just one perfect Spider-Man story after another. Right. Great run. I, they even made an action yeah. figure of the uh, the Green Goblin dragging Spider-Man with the mask. Oh, did yeah, they? they did. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Romita style. Classic. Yeah. Absolutely classic. Yeah. Well, talk a bit about Marvel Team Up. How did I think that was your first multiple issue run of Spider Man? That was my first regular gig with Spider Man, okay. and uh, you know, uh, like a lot of the stuff that I did in my early days at Marvel, uh, some of it I find hugely embarrassing <laughs> in retrospect because, you know, I'm, I was still learning my craft at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tom, I worked with Tom DeFalco was the editor, and he was just great to work with. And uh, I think Herb Trimpey was the first artist. Right. And I think it took me six or seven issues of fairly mediocre to awful stories to finally sort of find my rhythm with that book. And unfortunately, Herb Trimpey left the book shortly after that. So I wrote a lot of bad stories for Herb Trimpey. <laughs> <laughs> and then started writing some decent stories. I think it was Kerry Gamble who came on after that. Right. I'm looking at the but, covers uh, right now. You did the, how, how did you pick the, uh, the character to team up with Spider-Man? I always wondered how that worked. You know, it was just whatever I felt like doing. I mean, Tom Tom never said, do this or do that, you know. And, and uh, for me, very often, the more obscure the character, the more I liked him. Right. 
And I think I was writing Defenders at the same time, which was just filled with obscure characters, which is why you're seeing you see team-ups with, you know, the Son of Satan and, and Devil Slayer and all these characters that nobody else Who is King about. Kroll? I don't remember that issue. <laughs> King, oh, that, that was one of the single worst issues I've ever <laughs> King Kroll is, is one of the Robert E. Howard characters. Okay. He was the precursor to Conan. Okay. Gotcha. And so I did a. Uh, I had Spider-Man traveling back in time to ancient Atlantis to meet King Kong, and it was just. It was not good. <laughs> it was not. Good. It was not good. Uh-uh. I mean, now keep in mind, I was doing my absolute best at the time. Oh yeah. You know? But you know, you, but I look back and I just kind of go. Oh. <laughs> well, I, also one issue that sticks out in my mind is you wrote a Marvel Team Up One Seventeen, which is one of the first Spider-Man Wolverine team ups I remember. <laughs> my other least. Oh, favorite. is it really? <laughs> <laughs> it was a two-part story. I just, you know, you're hard on yourself. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, well, no, I'm, I'm very proud of the things that I think are great, and I'm very honest about the things that I think. Suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that two-part, you know, I was never, I was, ne- I, I loved the early X-Men, you right. know, and 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 then the uh, to call them the new X-Men. I mean, they've only been around the new X-Men for 35 years, right? Yeah. But the newer configuration of X-Men, I was never too care uh, to uh, connected to. Mm-hmm. And that that might have been one where someone said do Wolverine because I don't think that's a character I would have ever picked on my own because right. uh, another character that I had like and still have zero connection to like don't ask me to write Wolverine <laughs> <laughs> I just don't, I don't get it yeah. and it was a two parter and it just it just didn't work <laughs> it just didn't work the only the only good thing that came out of that is I managed I have something that I've been razzing. Tom DeFalco about since the story was written. Right. They were the second the second part, uh, Professor X and I think Mentallo are having a, a telepathic psychic battle, you know. Right. They're they're blasting away at each other with mind things, you know. And 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 um, finally Professor X defeats defeats Mentallo and I just had Mentallo kinda of like, you know, crashing back and falling on the floor and Tom added some kind of balloon that said <laughs> something like, My mental shields have been destroyed, and I am becoming unconscious. Because <laughs> everybody says that when they're about to pass out. <laughs> right, uh, you know, and, and, you know, so it's great. To this to this day, when I talk to Tom, that, in fact, I spoke to him recently, just this past week, and I think it came up again. You know? And he he brings it up now, because we just said we both get to laugh about it. <laughs> well, uh, a team-up that always works, generally, on the page is uh, when Spider-Man meets the Human Torch, and 121 is uh, a Carrie Gamble issue that you you did talk a bit about uh are you a fan of spidey and human torch teaming up i don't know if i was a fan of it but i really liked the way that story turned right. uh, turned out because it was a very um light story yeah. it was a very funny story and uh and i remember tom saying you know talking about uh the, the construction of the old ditko stories you know when, right. when ditko plotted those stories they had beautiful construction all these sort of little events almost like a seinfeld episode yeah you know? All these strange little events that would somehow collide, right. and I and looking back, and it's a long time ago, so I don't clearly remember. I think that's what I was aiming for, and also just to bring some humor in. Right. And and uh, and that was, I think, the one where where I brought in the Frogman. Yes. Wasn't that the one? I yeah. think so. Yeah. And, and Frogman's come out come in in a lot of your stories over the years. I because I just I, I loved him, you know, because basically what I did was I took that ridiculous old villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Daredevil, who was, I think, one of the goofiest villains that Stan ever came up with. Him and Stiltman. <laughs> right, Stiltman as well, yeah. And um, and then gave him a son. Right. Who who basically decides he wants to take his, you know, dad's gone straight because he realized he was, you know, what what a, what a failure he was as a villain. Right. You know? And he's basically a decent guy and didn't want to do it in the first place. And so his, his, his you know, teenage son, uh, overweight, you know, out of shape, right. nerd son, decides he's going to take dad's old costume and become a superhero. <laughs> And I just love that character. So every chance I get, I bring so, it back. In, in and that's character. Ollie, right? Is that his name? You know, I, I think it's. I don't a, think that was the Oliver. Name, or, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't remember his name. I remember Eugene. Y- Eugene, Eugene. Okay. That's right. That's right. Eugene. And I think I think I goofed in the first couple of stories and gave him like two different last names. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody noticed. Keep it quiet. <laughs> No, I think somebody noticed. Yep. Uh, I think somebody somewhere noticed. And, uh, but, yeah, no, so, so that, that story, actually, I, I look back on very fondly. It was just a lot of fun. And, and, and Spider-Man and the Torch play off each right. other very nicely. There, there's, a, there's a history of those characters playing off each other. As I told you before we started recording, uh, our Marvel team up around that era is when I really started getting into Spider-Man. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 1980 issues, I mean 1980 uh, run. And 127 and 128, which was uh, The Watcher, which I remember picking up at Christmas time. I remember enjoying that one. 
That was my Christmas story. I'm a, I'm a total Christmas story. I love Marvel Christmas stories, too. And, and I remember uh, back in the 80s, 1983, it looks like. I'm looking at the image right now, uh, where he teamed up with Captain America. There was a photo cover. How did that come about? Oh, that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were just into trying some new things. I think they might have done a few different photo covers in that era, yeah. all of which came out ridiculously good. <laughs> it's like a dude you in know. a suit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just some guy. Was he on a rooftop or something? Well, I don't the, remember. The, uh, the, well, he's standing next to a guy in a Captain America suit, and, and before Photoshop, it's like they're on train tracks or something. I'm looking at the cover right now. Right, if, you know, Photoshop had been around, they could have probably made it look really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although now there's so many movies and all this stuff, they could just, all I need is a yeah. still from one of these movies, I don't even have to bother. Well, it, it did stand out on the spinner rack back in the day. Right. But, uh, <laughs> it, might, it might not have stood out in the best way possible. <laughs> well, you, around the 128, 129 issues of Team Up, you, you uh, came on amazing for the first time. How, how did that story come about? It was 223, we were talking about a little bit earlier, Night of the Ape, it's called. That was just one of those, hey, you know, Denny plotted the story, he can't dialogue it this month. I don't know whether whether Denny was still around or had left Marvel at that point. I don't remember what the circumstances were. But basically they just got stuck that month. And since I was working with Tom on Team Up, he said, hey, dialogue this. And as a freelancer, you never say no. <laughs> and you, so there was, you worked with the – no great. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go you ahead. worked with a young John Romita Jr., and it's 1981 yeah. is the year. This is 1981. That's what it says. To, uh, wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I that was no pun intended. <laughs> did, at a young age, did you see that he had a, a – were you a, you were obviously a fan of his dad. Did you see the, the young talent there? Oh, yeah. You could see it right, right. right then and there, probably more than you could see it in my writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he was, he, was, he, was, he was really good from the get-go, and right. he just keeps getting better. You know, right. I worked with him years later on, on the Lost Years miniseries, right. and it was just – Unbelievable! Just what a fantastic job he did. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but f- from '81, and I think Craven's Last Hunt was '87. Was that right? Yeah. What did you touch Spider-Man again between those years? Well, uh, it was, I don't think I was done with Team Up in '81. I think I wrote Team Up for like three years. You're right. '83 is so maybe it's '81 to '83. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Right. Yeah. No, in between that, I didn't. I okay. did not touch it at all. Right. Not at all. And um, then I forgot what, you know, how, how I ended up getting back on it. I think it's, I had been exclusive to Marvel for like uh, five or six years. Right. And then uh, things, things went a little south, so I got my parachute and jumped and went back over to D.C. <laughs> to start doing work over there. Yeah. What year was that? Um, probably 86. Okay. Right. And, you know, right, it was just around the time, uh, just before, soon after that, uh, Giffen and I started working on Justice League together, and I was doing a ton of work at D.C. Right which is where I had started in the first place. Right. Um, and I think Jim Owsley, later to be known as Christopher Priest, yeah. was uh, was editing Spider-Man at the time. Hmm? And Shooter had left, and DeFalco was editor-in-chief. And they said, let's go out to lunch. So I went out to lunch, and they both basically ganged up at me and said, <laughs> write Spider-Man. <laughs> we want to get you and Mike Zeck on, on Spectacular Spider-Man. And I loved working with Mike Zeck. I, I worked with him on Captain America, mm-hmm. just you know one of the... Great, great artists out there. Right. Um, and I said, sure. And the, 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 I think I, I wrote quite a bit in the introduction to the Craven hardcover about the convoluted journey that that story took. Right. But the short version, I'll give you the really short version, was I originally had developed it as a Batman pitch for DC. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, and it, it was a Batman, originally a Batman Joker story. Hmm. Um, now, the Joker didn't Bat- commit suicide at the end, did he? No, okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but, but the the premise was that Batman killed or thought he killed. I mean, Joker thought he killed Batman. Okay, and um, and Batman gets buried. It has the has the whole you know grave thing going on. But the Joker story was totally different. Where the premise was which, uh, that the Joker, in killing Batman, had no more reason to exist, so his mind's now, mm-hmm. and he went sane. Well, I later took that idea years later and did it for DC. Uh, in Legends of Dark Knight is a story called Going Sane, which is one of my favorite stories ever, which, thank God, DC just collected and just came hmm. out a few weeks ago. I have to look for that. I've never um, read that one. Oh, that's the, I, I, honestly, I think it's the best superhero story I've ever read. Oh, wow. Going, going yeah, Sane. Very, very, what's what's, very proud what's the, the, uh, the book it's called? What, what Batman book was that? It came out Legends of the Dark Knight, but now it's just out as a trade paperback called Going Sane. Okay. Yeah. So, um, 
But anyway, so I pitched that to uh, to DC, and I forgot what happened. It just got oh, I know what happened because I, I was really delving into the Joker, and Lynn Wein said, oh, we have this other story in development that this guy Alan Moore is doing called The Killing Joke. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't want to do two Joker stories. They seem a little similar, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I forgot that and went away. And I think I went and I reworked it as a Hugo, Hugo Strange story, the other Batman, big Batman villain that I love, Hugo Strange, uh-huh. and pitched it again after Len left to Denny O'Neill. And to give you an idea how long ago this was, Denny's answer was, oh, this is really good, but we've already got our Batman graphic novel this year. <laughs> Yeah, we only do one a year, right? <laughs> they were they were only doing like one graphic graphic novel a year, as opposed to you know churning out five hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, no kidding. Get- so I, I I tucked the story away. Now I have to I have to backtrack because the actual original original version of that story, believe it or not, I had pitched Tom DeSalco mm. a couple of years before that a Wonder Man miniseries. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you remember. I think they had already established that Wonder Man kind of was could be killed and come back to life kind of right. thing. And I did a story with a grim, where the Grim Reaper basically killed Wonder Man, and he was buried, but it was like for like six months, and then he comes back from right. the grave. Blah 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 blah. And Tom, God bless him, turned me down. <laughs> so now I've been turned down by Tom DeFalco, Glenn Wein, Denny O'Neill, turned down by the best. Yeah. I have to say. <laughs> but as as I said in the introduction to Craven's Last Hunt, I really really believe that stories have lives of their own and they need to take their time. It has nothing to do with me. It's like the story itself. Right. It knows when it's ready to come out. So that story was not ready. So everything that, that happened that blocked me from writing those other versions of those stories was absolutely right on the moon. Right. So when, when Tom and, and, and Jim took me out to lunch and said, hey, well, so what do you want to do? I went home and I thought about it and I thought, oh, God, Spider-Man would be great for this story, right. this buried alive idea I've been playing with now for three <laughs> or four years, you know? And um, and so I, I worked it up, and I decided, well, I'm obviously not going to use Hugo Strange. I'll create a brand-new villain. So Craven wasn't even Oh, in really? It. Yeah. Craven wasn't in it. So I created the brand-new villain. Don't ask me who he was, because I have no clue, <laughs> no memory, and no notes. As long as it wasn't Frogman. Um, <laughs> it wasn't Frogman. <laughs> no, it was like a new villain who was really sort of, you know, studying Spider-Man and decided he was going to kill him and prove that he was superior to him. It's the same concept, right. you know? Um, and I pitched it to Owsley, and he loved it and loved the new villain, and hey, let's do it. This is great. And then I was home one day, and I just was doing what writers do um, most of the time, which is avoiding work. <laughs> and I had, I guess, some uh, Marvel Universe handbook lying around, right. and I was flipping through it, and I came to Craven very randomly because mm-hmm. Craven was not a character I had any interest in. In fact, I thought he was one of the goofier Spider-Man right. villains. I never really took him very seriously. Yeah, if you're going to go out and fight uh, superheroes, why do it in a loincloth? <laughs> before, before that, he did it in pedal pills. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. And, and, and as I was reading, I don't, I don't, uh, whoever wrote the, the entry in the Marvel Handbook or whether he'd been established in stories, I don't know, they mentioned that he was Russian. Right. And uh, I'm a huge, huge Dostoevsky uh, fan. Mm-hmm. I love Dostoevsky. I think he's you know, one of the greatest writers I've ever lived. Brothers Karamazov, greatest novel ever written. And and I understand the Russian soul. So when I saw that they said that, that Craven was Russian, something kind of went off in my head. And like in a flash, I, I understood this character, or at least my conception of this character, right. and what could be done with him. And I called up Alzheimer and I said, forget this new villain. It's going to be Craven. <laughs> and he was like, oh, but I like the new villain. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but that that was like that piece just kind of came together, right. and and that was one of those stories that for the most part it just sort of what you know it took a, you know like three or four years to gestate, but once I started writing it it just it just came out and I think the other thing that really influenced it was that uh, when I sat down to finally start writing it my my life was a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was one of the worst periods of my wow. life ever one of the darkest most miserable periods in my life so I think all of what I was going through in my personal life got poured into this dark, right. miserable story, as well as all my hope, you know, got funneled through Spider-Man, who was really the figure yeah. of hope in, in all this darkness. You so know? you were, liter- you were really, literally climbing through the mud to get out. <laughs> through- <laughs> I was. I, I felt like all of those characters. Right. I felt like Spider-Man buried alive. I felt like vermin down in the sewer, you mm-hmm. know. I felt like Craven losing his mind. Um, I really, I really, it was, it was like each of those characters reflected a different aspect of my own psyche and what I was going through at that point. Right. Which is why, I, why looking back, because that's one of those stories that just, you know, it's, it's was it, 20 years later? 87, and yeah. And it just keeps coming back wherever I go. If I'm at a convention, if people talk to me, uh, it's Craven's last night, Craven's last night. <laughs> and I think, I think it has that resonance because it came from such a place of 
truth, right. you know? Right. It really was a reflection of what I was going through. Now, the, um, reading it years ago, um, there's a few new things that, that wasn't done in 87. Like, uh, the right. three parts came out in the three different issues of Spider-Man. There was Web, Spec, and Amazing. Talk a bit about the yeah. decision for that. That decision, uh, by, by that point, uh, Jim Alfie had left staff and Jim Salakrup right. came on as editor. I was giving credit for this. And, uh, and he basically said, how are we going to do a, this story with Spider-Man buried alive in Spectacular Spider-Man mm-hmm. and have two, or well, I don't know whether it was two or three other books. I guess it was two other books. Right. Two other books where Spider-Man's just bouncing around fighting Dr. Octopus or the kangaroo or whoever it is. You know, it's going to completely dilute the power of the story. Right. So he was the one who said, let's run it through all three books for two months. And I believe it was the first time anyone had ever done that. Yeah, it's... Same creative team through all three books with one story for two months. So you probably had to have it and in the can a lot earlier or for a while. Yeah, we we must have. Yeah. I mean, in order for that, I, I don't remember you know the the chronology that well, but but we must have had quite a bit of it done in order to pull that off. Right. Um, because the last thing you want is to is to plan that and then discover that you're right. not going to make your deadline on one of those books. Right. So I think that's one of the things that also uh, added to the books uh, to the story's success was 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 Jim's idea of doing that, and I give him all the credit in the world for that. Right. And he was also the one I think when when it was collected later. Who called it Craven's Last Hunt? I didn't call it Craven's oh, really? Last Hunt. The name was the name was Fearful Symmetry, which is, became the sort of the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Salakup uh, called it Craven's Last Hunt, so he gets all the credit for the crossover <laughs> and for that time. And that was actually kind of like the first peak of a weekly Spider-Man book. That what the continuing yeah. storyline was back in '87 with that. Yeah, exactly. It was the whole thing was very new. It was also you know looking back, probably the the single darkest. Spider-Man story that had been done till that point. Oh, I agree, very much so. And then the next month was the Mad Dog uh, Ward or whatever. So, I think right after Craven's Last Hunt was that book by Ann Nocenti. Yeah, I believe so because I think Salakup <clears throat> saw that he was onto a good idea, there, right? You know, right. and uh, and everybody else has been milking that idea. <laughs> Even Batman too. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. another first in that book was um, you're killing off a Ditko villain. How, how did how did yeah. that come about? You know, it was just the natural progression for the character. Right. It wasn't, you know, it's, it's, I tend to write very intuitively. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll get an idea, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll follow it through, and I'll make notes, and I'll do all that. But, but really, when I'm in the writing, the best stories are the ones that just sort of start to tell themselves. And you're not trying to make the story follow you. You're following the story. You're following the character. Mm-hmm. So for Craven, it was just where he took me. It wasn't like, oh, cool, and I'll make Craven kill himself. At the end. <laughs> you know? It was this is what this is what Craven did. Right. I had no choice about it. This is where it was leading. I, I mean, how is it really hard to go into the bosses and say, you know what, we've had this character for X amount of years. I want to off him. How, is that is that a, a hard thing to do? Do you really have to pitch the story and and you know, I got to tell you right. that story. Mm-hmm. Nobody said boo to me. Really, anything. Hmm. The only thing I remember now, now I'm remembering a little more clearly, I think it might have overlapped the end of Shooter's reign and the beginning of DeFalco's reign, because I remember right. Shooter just basically, there were, there were a couple of bones, and there was a scene of, <laughs> of, of, uh, of vermin, you know, and there were a couple of bones indicating that he'd been down there eating people, right. you know, and I think Shooter said to take out a couple of the bones, and that's about the only well, thing I recall that anyone said to change right. about the whole story. And the, and, I, and the suicide at the end was, I, you don't really, didn't see that in the 80s for comics, I don't think, at least for no, Spider-Man I mean, at least. It, it, no, you, you really you really didn't, and 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 again, everyone just went. This is a great story. Let's do it. <laughs> I had I don't think anybody changed a single word of my script. Wow, that's awesome. Changed anything in the plot? Then of course, then you, you know you add in Mike Zek doing this absolutely brilliant artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, because honestly, you know, a, a story like this is not going to have the success that Craven did unless it has both elements, which is the story yes. and the art. I could have had the same exact story. The same exact script, the same exact words, and a different artist, and it wouldn't have had the same impact. Right. It was the fact that Zach and uh, and uh, oh god, I'm blanking. Who ain't uh, Bob McLeod? Right? right, I think so. Bob, yeah, Bob McLeod. I'm pretty right. sure. And I, you just instantly no, wait, think wait. of Zach's uh, Spider-Man coming out of the grave. And and if you go to Mike Zach's website, he does commissions, and and he's done a lot of different figures coming out of the grave in that same pose. Like there's a Batman image, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is funny because as I said, my original idea was a Batman yeah. story with Batman coming up out of well, it. Well, it looks great with Batman coming out of it. I've seen Zach pencil it on his website. It looks great. Yeah, yeah, he's he's amazing. 
It's too bad that he's not doing I know. more actual comics these I days. I know. I he wish he was. To, he seems to be mostly doing commissions. Right. I wish he Because he's just, he's, uh, you know, he's one of the best. And to, to, to you know, when you're working Marvel style mm-hmm. and you, you do it plot first and then you get the artwork and you're dialoguing off the artwork, when you have Mike's stuff, and again, this is very important to the Craven story, his storytelling is so impeccable. Right. The flow between panels, everything that you want to communicate in the visuals is there, which means in the script, you don't have to belabor that. You don't have to point out, oh, look, Spider-Man is picking this up and walking there. It's all clear. A lot of times you get pages back and, and you really have to explain what's going on in the art because it's not clear. Right. So with this story, because Zek's storytelling was so impeccable and so perfectly clear and so emotionally clear, um, what I was able to do was completely focus on that internal narrative of the characters because that's really what the, so much of the story is about. You know, the artwork carries the outer the outer hull, mm-hmm. and then the, the captions all, you know, end up inside Craven's head, inside uh, Spider-Man's head, inside Vermin's head, and that's, I think, one of the things that made that story work. Right. And with an artist other than Mike, it might not have worked at all. And that, that story came right after the marriage, the, the wedding issue, and, a, and you were one of the first to write a married Spider-Man. Is, is that, that a challenge? It wasn't. It felt very natural to mm-hmm. me. It felt very natural to me. Um, you know, there's been all kinds of talk out there because, you know, they, they undid the marriage and blah, 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 and was the marriage a hindrance? And somebody from some website asked me about that. And honestly, my feeling was I never felt it was a hindrance because I, I believed in that marriage. I believed in those characters being in love and having that relationship. And I think for Craven's Last Hunt, it actually deepened it. I mean, here they were. They were just married. They were profoundly in love. And that was the thing that was driving Peter up out of that grave and back to life. And that's that's the hope and that's the light that Craven didn't have and that Vernon didn't have, you know, was that love for Mary Jane mm-hmm. and that the, the foundation of that marriage. So I, I, I didn't think it was a hindrance at all. In fact, it was a, it was a huge help to the right. story. And I, I always have that image of the spider crawling on the, on the, uh, the floor and Mary Jane waiting in the apartment and she's smashing it. I always right. love that image. <laughs> And when I read that, I, I, it's, I just thought of this. When I read that years ago, when Robbie comes over to comfort Mary Jane, yeah. as a writer, are you implying that Robbie kind of knows who Peter and Spider-Man are? Because it's always been kind of hinted at. I think, you know, it's always been kind of hinted yeah. at, and it felt very natural to me, as I recall, 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, I guess, I, I was absolutely uh, hinting at yeah. that. And I don't, they've never actually come out and said No, they haven't, well, with the exception yeah. of the unmasking after Civil War. But, no, they, they've never come out and said Robbie knows. But it's always yeah. been hinted because he's always been on Peter's side. And right. Jonah's the opposite. Right. He's, a, he's a great character. Yep. He's, a, he's, a, he's a very warm character yep. and, and um, a character that they could probably do a lot more with. I agree. And uh, after 87 came out uh, – Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think 91, you joined a Spectacular Spider-Man with Sal Buscema. Was that your next yeah. uh, tackle of Spider-Man? I believe it was. There, there might have been, somewhere in there was the Craven sequel, but I think that might have been simultaneously with that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Talk about how you, how'd you um, get on the book with Spectacular. You know, I had basically, uh, aside from Craven's Last Hunt, I was basically uh, a DC guy at that point and, and spent most of those years in between writing 850,000 different Justice League stories with Keith, you know? <laughs> And um, and we it, it almost coincided with when we were wrapping up our run on Justice League, right. and Danny Fingeros uh, had taken over the Spider-Man books and just called me up and said, "Hey, do you want to do one?" Right. And he basically said, "You got your choice. You can do the Web of Spider-Man, and, or you could do Spectacular Spider-Man with Sal Buscema." Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of Sal's work. So am I. <laughs> so I said, "I said, let's do it." And I have to say, as much of a fan of Sal's work as I was before then. Something happened when we started working on that book. You know, the same thing as I'm saying about Zek. You can't create writer-artist chemistry. It's either there or it's not. Right. And I've worked on jobs where I've worked with, like, really, really good artists. And there's a strong story there, but something doesn't click between the two. Right. And it just lays there on the page. And with Sal, virtually from the first panel, we were just off and running. Yeah. I think he did some of the very, very best work of his career on those two years of Spectacular. I, I agree. He was on that book, really I, I think, almost 10 years uh, in, on Spectacular, yeah. and it's just one of the longest Spider-Man runs I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, look at the work that he did on The Child Within and that Vulture story, you yep. know, arrangements, and so many of the, all the Harry Osborne stuff, he just he just outdid himself. You know, we just, we just connected and clicked 
Mm-hmm. And and along with that, he's just one of the nicest guys on the planet too. So he was a delight to work with on a personal level. Yeah. So one of the great great collaborations I've ever had was working. And with he's him. still tackling Spider-Man. He, he's inking uh, Ron Friends' work on Spider-Girl. On Spider-Girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which is great. I would love to interview him. He, he's one of my favorites. Uh, I, yeah, he and he's done everything. Here's a guy who has like just done everything. It's hard. It's hardly a character at Marvel you could name that he hasn't done. And that first, uh, I, I think, uh, your first team-up with him on, uh, not team-up, but spectacular issue, was uh, the, it had vermin in it. it. Was your first spectacular? That's right. The first, right. the first, uh, the first one was the child within was the name of that story. Talk a bit about vermin. You, you've used vermin a few times. What do you like about that character? That's a good question. No one ever asked me that. Because <laughs> Craven and Vermin come back a, a bit in your work, so yeah, yeah. You know, Ver, I guess you know it's 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 sort of like once you get involved with these characters, I wouldn't from the outside looking in, I wouldn't say, "Oh, Vermin, what a fascinating character." You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, Mike Zeck, I, I, I we used him, I created him in Captain America, and Mike designed him, and and that's where the character started. And I sort of pulled him sort of in very randomly into Craven's Last Hunt because we needed, I thought it needed. Uh, an objective for them both to go after right. and to contrast the two styles between Craven as Spider-Man and Spider-Man. Yeah? Right. But as I began to write the story and began to get a sense of this character's psychology and desperation and, and what might be behind it, you know, right. I, I became fascinated with him. So it's another case of like, even with the character that I created, <laughs> of the more I wrote him, the more I understood him, the more I got to, to, to uh, really connect with the character. So the child within was a chance to really find out who Vermin was, what was he before he became Vermin, what were the things in his life psychologically and emotionally that created him. You know? right. And that's really what the whole Child Within story was about, was getting, uh, it was probably the single most deeply psychological Spider-Man story I ever wrote, because it really got deep, deep into Peter's head, deep into Harry's head, deep into Vermin's head, and and it's a story uh, that, that I'm really proud of. Frankly, I like it better than Craven's really? Last Hunt. Really? Where, where does Craven's Last Hunt rank on your list? Your top is it in your top five, type ten of favorite stories. You time? know, I have to put it up there because I recognize sort of objectively what a powerful story it is. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but like I, if I look at say that that in almost that entire first year of Spectacular Spider-Man, I, I love and, yeah. and and as stories, I prefer them. I think. Mm-hmm. I think Spectacular Spider-Man 200, which was the death of Harry Osborn, right. is my absolute favorite Spider-Man story that I ever did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Craven is definitely up there in the top, because uh, I, I, but I almost view it as the work of somebody other than me. It's the only way I can put it. It's like, uh, oh, yeah, there's, well, you, I wrote that. That's, that's such a weird story. I wrote wait, that. You <laughs> said you were in a different place when you wrote it. so it, it probably. And I think that might have something right. to do with it, because, you know, my life had moved on from that, and it was such a dark time that maybe when I look at that story, mm-hmm. I'm sort of revisiting the dark time that it came out of. So I think that might be one of the reasons why I tend to. Yeah to push Craven over a little bit in the corner. Right. You know? But I, at the same time acknowledging, I understand intellectually, although not emotionally, I understand you know, why, why people still respond to it. Right. I, I totally get that. But for my own emotional connection, I'm more connected to those other stories, and especially that Death of Harry Osmond story. I think and and that piece of work is probably the one that's been reprinted the most of you, I would imagine. That, that one's still in which, print. <laughs> which one? Yeah, Craven's Last Hunt. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, they just did these 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 two hardcovers mm-hmm. that came out, I guess, last year. Now that it's coming out in paperback right. again uh, this month, I think. yeah, that, which is great with me. Keep reprinting it and keep painting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Plus, you know, again, I'm not saying it's not a, a terrific story. I know that it is. It's just that I have I have this little sort of blank spot with it that I can't get past. Sometimes. And what what'd you say your number one favorite uh, story you've ever written was? Uh, of Spider-Man? Of Spider-Man and of all time. They can be two answers. Oh, I don't know, of all time. God. <laughs> of Spy- oh, let's stick with Spider-Man for now. Okay. <laughs> is, is, is that uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 200, which was the death of Harry Osborn. Right. Well, let's let's talk a bit about that. Leading up around the 170 and 180 issues, you, you kind of made Harry go a little crazy, if, I, if yeah. my memory serves. And yeah. didn't he start hearing his dad's voice in his head, and he just led up to him get, putting the goblin suit on again? Right. Basically, you know, his whole childhood kind of came roaring back and his whole dysfunctional relationship with his father and trying to prove himself to his father and all his personal demons. Mm-hmm. And um, and that really kicked in with that child, uh, the child within storyline. Um, and then over the course of those two years, Harry kept weaving back in. You know, every few months he would pop up again, all leading up to Spectacular 200. So it was really something that I nursed along over the course of two years. And to give credit where credit is due, I mean, Jerry Conway was the first guy that did the Harry as Green Goblin. Right. 
so I was building on a very solid foundation. Mm-hmm. But I always loved, what I loved about it and why I preferred the Harry Osborne Green Goblin to the Norman Green Go- Goblin, because Norman, to me, once he became the Green Goblin, was just sort of a nut. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's definitely crazy. Um, whereas Harry, the, the thing I love is that these guys are best friends. Yeah. They're best friends who are also simultaneously you know, the worst enemies. I mean, I think that I think that, that Harry Osborne's death story was called Best of Enemies, which just kind of explains nice. it in one line. Yeah. And that's, I love the dynamic there. And even though, you know, part of him completely wanted to destroy Peter, another part of him totally loved Peter and loved Mary Jane. And while he's trying to destroy Spider-Man, he's being kind to Mary Jane. And, yeah. you know, any anything that that gets into the heart and soul of what we are as humans, which is never just one thing, we're all full of these contradictions. Mm-hmm. And no one is completely a villain. You know, the, the biggest villain has, has, has compassion, has kindness, has love, and the greatest hero has all the dark stuff in it. And mm-hmm. that story uh, and that character, that Harry Osborn Green Goblin, was a great character to explore that. And that friendship, right. that friendship between the two of them that was, you know, neither one of them could, could really bring themselves to, to end it because they loved each other too much to you know no, no and in the end of course Harry Harry discovered that he couldn't kill him. Right. Yeah, that's one of my was, images I remember from that story is where he goes out and Mary Jane says rescue him or something like that and he uh sacrifices yeah. himself at that yeah. Uh, so it's been what 10 years 20 years since I've read that book but I I remember that that visual and that that uh story still sticks out in my head. Yeah, that one when was that that probably was like early 90s. Probably. Yeah. Like 90s. I, I don't have that one that year right in front of me but well, uh, yeah, I would think I, I think it was the early nineties. Uh, yeah. f- few of your stories, I'll, I'll, if you watch The Sopranos, I'll call it whacking. <laughs> you, okay. You've whacked a few. You've whacked uh, Craven, uh, Harry Osborn, and Aunt May. I mean, those are those are big. What's it like to whack those great characters? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll tell you a very funny story. Uh, around the time of the Aunt May story. Uh-huh. Um, that was when, uh, un- unfortunately, all the spider books were in this sort of interconnected thing during the Clone Saga, right. which, I, as a writer, I never particularly enjoyed writing. You know, part two of something. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, that's like yeah, a I wouldn't either. Seven part story. And um, although happily the, the Aunt May story pretty much stood alone, so that was a, that was a, that was a good mm-hmm. one. Um, but we had been dis- I've been discussing the idea of 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 Aunt May dying as a way to say to the, the readers, we're really changing things. We're not going back. We're going to move forward from here. You know. Mm-hmm. Because well, we can get into this later, but the original plan of the clone story really was to have Ben Riley come in and take over as Spider-Man while Peter and Mary Jane went off and had their baby and had a happily ever after, right. you know? And and then using the Ben Riley Spider-Man to start again from square one, to reboot the character, to do anything that we wanted with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but to back it up, so I was on the phone talking to Howard Mackey, who was writing one of the other books. Right. And, you know, my wife's in the next room, and, and we're discussing the death, you know, killing Aunt May, and she's listening to me going, yeah, we, we have to kill her. <laughs> we really, we have to kill her. And the idea of someone tapping into the phone and hearing these two guys discussing, you know, the, the murder of this old woman, you know. <laughs> nice. What? So, you know, so, but, but again, yeah. these things usually, you know, they come, you know, Harry's death, again, I, I, when I started that story, I didn't think it was going to end with Harry dying. It just did. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started Craven, uh, until I'd work, you know, I, I wasn't like, and I'm going to do this, and then at the end, you know, he's going to, he's, this is going to happen. I, right. I, as I recall, I don't think that was part of the puzzle from the very beginning. Right. As I evolved the story, I saw that that's where it was going. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can't be like, oh boy, we're going to do a, a, a big event and kill off so and so. It has to feel right. Yep. It has to feel right. right. And um, you know, the Aunt May story. Uh, Aunt May is another character that once I began to write Aunt May. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my God, here's a character that has so much more depth and so many more dimensions than we've seen in most interpretations. Right. And I really enjoyed writing that character. And and it's, I think it's the same thing that happened with Craven. You know, nobody gave a damn about Craven before he killed himself. Right. And then when that story was over, and it was like, why'd you kill Craven? Oh my God, he's such a great character. And if you would have asked them six months before, they would have said, what a dumb character. <laughs> so it's you know, it, it, it's all in the way that you write these characters. Right. And and I think. Uh, same thing happened with Aunt May. It's like I feel like I was able to bring out other dimensions in her character, so that her death meant something. It wasn't just like, oh, that old lady that's always sick just croaked. You know what I mean? It was what? that that story had had some real resonance, and I had spent you know a few years writing stories focusing on Aunt May, and and really uh, from from my perspective, evolving her character. A little bit. And w- was there much objection to Harry Osborn dying from Marvel? I mean, were they like, no, you can't kill him? Nope. Really? Nope, no objection whatsoever. Hmm. Go ahead. Wow. And 
you know, the flip side is as we as we have seen, yeah. it's all it's comics. Yeah. No one dies. They get they all come they back. get better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although Craven has not come back, that's pretty amazing. It's twenty years and Craven has not come. What do you back. what do you think of that? I mean, for, I guess my first question is, what is it like to write the death, and then another writer years later comes back and resurrects him? What's that like? Well, forget years later. Well, killed Aunt May. Well, wasn't it like one year later yeah. when they took yeah, Burn and Mackey brought her back. <laughs> and, and you know. I, uh, that one was like, you know, my head kind of went, you know, I, I figured someone eventually would do it. I didn't think it would happen so soon. Yeah. <laughs> because that was another story that I'm very, very proud of. You oh, know? yeah. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite moments in my entire career was that story came out, and I came home and I had a message on my answering machine from John Lomita Sr. Mm-hmm. to tell me that he read the story, that it made him cry, that he loved it, mm-hmm. you know. So that was, I mean, what an amazing thing to get a call yeah. like that from that's, one of your childhood heroes, I, you know. That's, that's the guy that introduced you to him. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's crazy. You know? So that was uh, so that, that was a very special story, and I figured, eh, maybe in five years I'll bring it back. <laughs> I didn't think it would happen so quickly. <laughs> and uh, and then, what you know, the story was something like. Well, she was what, an she was an actress. Pretending, yeah, yeah, that, you know. So it's like, mm, yeah. Okay. I would really, but you know I would really feel cheated as a writer if that. You mean it was an actress you know I what? killed? <laughs> the truth of the matter is, uh, Giff and I had the same conversations when they were like whacking all our our, our Justice League characters. You know, <laughs> uh, the story still exists. Yes. You can pick that story up anytime and read it. And while you're reading it, the reality of the story is there, and and it's just the nature of comics. You know, I don't know what editorial decree came down to those guys that said you must bring Aunt May back. I, you know, I don't blame anybody. It's just it's comics, you know. So someone must have said, hey, you know, we we really want. I got a new editor. They said we want Aunt May back. Find a way to bring her back, and that's what they came up right. with. You know, I've done. I'm sure I've undone other people's continuity along the way and changed other people's stories just as much as it's been done to me. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. And they they so, still haven't explained how Harry Osborne came back, so they're probably going to have to tackle your story. <laughs> and, and I guess, but did, didn't they just basically roll back time so he's alive uh, and that's all, right? Quote, it's magic. That's that's. Magic. <laughs> I don't know how how Harry Osborn. So, 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 so technically, I guess my Harry Osborn story doesn't exist, and my Aunt May story doesn't exist well, they, uh, within within continuity. Anyway, I don't even know if if since Peter and Mary Jane weren't married, did the, did the Craven story? No, no, they, that was actually just mentioned in uh, the latest issues from last month. Uh, oh, really? They were living together. They weren't married. They were living together. Is oh. how they got around that. <laughs> I see. So, oh well. So, what, you know, it's just comic books. So you wrote two kids and, and... living in sin. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they right. weren't married, at... and that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, you're dealing with the devil, anyway. <laughs> right. but, but but you know, it, it, like what I'm trying to say is, in the big picture, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, the story. It's what matters are the stories themselves, and the stories are all out there. You know, Blue Beetle's still alive. Whoever else they knocked <laughs> off in Justice League, he's still there. Go read the Given to Matter stories. They're all still there. Go read Craven's Last Hunt. Go read, you yep. know, uh, the Harry Osborn story. And it's just a story. So you read it, you enjoy the story, and you move on. And uh, after Spec, you uh, got bumped up to the Amazing Spider-Man title in the mid-'90s, I think. Talk a bit, right. talk a bit about that. How did that come about? And is, it, is there a difference between writing Spectacular and Amazing? There, there is a difference. Okay. I'll get to that in a second. But what happened basically was, you know, when I was done with Spectacular Spider-Man, and um, you know, I did my two years, and I pretty much felt like, oh, okay, I'm done now. I don't think I have much more Spider-Man left in me. And uh, I stuck around for a couple of months to do Maximum Carnage, which which I shouldn't have. And <laughs> yeah, that was you were writing part seven of fifteen or whatever. Right. I wrote like three. I think three parts of that or something along the way. You know, it was, wasn't 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 my favorite Spider-Man arc ever, <laughs> uh, by any means. Um, Although that one also has stayed in print. Yeah, no years. kid. Don't, don't complain. Don't, don't complain about that check. <laughs> uh, no, I shouldn't because uh, it's out yeah. there. Um, and and what happened with me several times with this character, the same thing. Is I, I made such a connection with the character that I began to miss the character. Yeah. Oh, you know, and not almost missing the character. You have to realize that we writers are insane. So, <laughs> um, I, I missed Peter like he was a friend. You know, it's like, oh, Peter, he's such a great guy. Yeah. So, so basically, Amazing Spider-Man was opening up, and I think um, DeFalco uh, was going to do it, and then he couldn't do it. I think it. he, he um, followed you after you left, I think. Yeah, but he was but, but he was going to do it at that point when I was going to okay. do it, and I think he chose not to for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Danny said, hey, you want to do Amazing Spider-Man? I said, sure. And so one of the difference is, differences is when I was on Spectacular Spider-Man, that's not the flagship book. Right. So 
I was allowed to basically create my own little, you know, uh, my own little universe of my own stuff, and no one bothered me. If I didn't want to, I didn't want to get involved in any crossover there. I just did. If you really look at my spectacular Spider-Man run there, it was pretty much left on its own in its own little universe. Right. Um, Amazing Spider-Man has to be watched a little more closely. Mm-hmm. But you can't. I, I couldn't quite go off the deep end in the same. And really, what you know, probably four or five months into that, maybe six months into that, um, was when the clone thing started, and all the books became interconnected anyway. Right. Um, but I but I worked with Mark Bagley on that book, and Bagley is another absolutely terrific artist and another impeccable storyteller. Yep. You know, um, which is funny because when we got on the book, both of us were sort of uncertain of the other. You know? <laughs> uh, he was like, oh, God, he's going to do these heavy psychological stories. I don't know if I don't like this. And, then, <laughs> and I was like, I don't know this guy. I've been working with, I worked with Sal for two years. We had such a great relationship. How's this going to work out? You know. Right. And then the very first issue that we did, which I think ended up being the fourth part of some... Uh, Pursuit, it was called. Pursuit, yeah. that's right. That's right. It was. Uh, uh, that's right. Um, you, I'm looking at the and, cover right now. You're, you've got a grave about the smash on uh, the chameleon. Right, yep. right. It was also I managed to weave it into the Craven mythology and the Chameleon mythology, mm-hmm. and uh, and I don't know if that was where it was established that the Chameleon was uh, was Craven's half brother. Right. But uh, anyway, Bagley turns in this job, and it was beautiful. He did a fantastic job, you know. And we ended up having a great time working together. He's a really nice guy and a really, really, really good artist, and we had a terrific time working together. Right. Um, but like I said, four or five months into that, uh, the clone saga reared its head, and then we were all off in this interconnected universe. Yeah. T- tell me about be- being on the, sp- the flagship and the word clone saga gets mentioned at a meeting. How, how did that come about? <laughs> well, you know, the first time it came up, I think Danny Finger uh, said to me something like, you know, Terry wants to do something with the clone. You don't want to do that, do you? Because <laughs> 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 he, he knew me. And he knew I, was, I said, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> well, you know, because I, I remember the, the clone thing. I wasn't, you know, clones and Spider-Man it didn't make any sense. Uh, I never I never quite, I don't even know if I was reading the book back then. Maybe I just heard about the stories, right. you know, and just thought, eh, clone, it just sounds dumb. <laughs> and then what we had one of our spider summits, you know, we had all the writers and all the artists and all the editors together. And... Um, Terry Cavanaugh, who had cooked up the idea, explained what he had in mind. Because uh, uh, you know, I remember saying something like, yeah, the only way this is ever going to work is if it turns out that the clone is the real guy. You right. know? And, and Terry said, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the idea basically came to be, well, we could do something that would really shake the foundation here right. and, and allow us to go in and then clear the decks and start anew. You know, after however many years Spider-Man had been around then, it was probably 30-something years. Right. And still have a viable Spider-Man, and yet have a fresh beginning. Right. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of of stories about identity, personal identity. When we discover that we're not who we think we are, that reality isn't what we've always assumed it to be. I love Philip K. Dick. I love the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, this was a very Philip K. Dick Twilight Zone kind of idea right. for Peter to discover, ultimately, that he is not who he thought he was. Right. And then you have Ben out there running around thinking he was something other. And, and then having the flip, and the idea was not to drag it out for 650,000 years, though. <laughs> yeah, oh, no doubt. Well, I, I, The idea was to go in and do it in a reasonable amount of time. I think we, our original plan was six months. You know? No doubt. Because <laughs> you got to realize there were three books and a, and a big... Uh, the the un- unlimited were, book, yeah. Yeah, there was the unlimited, so there was a lot, a lot of story would happen in a month. Right. Um, so the idea was to go in, go in there very quickly. Maybe it was somewhere between six months at most a year. I don't even think we were aiming for a year. It might have been originally six or eight months or something. Get in, tell the story, flip the world, send Ben off on his way as the new Spider-Man. The end. Right. And I think had it been done uh, quickly and concisely like that, I think the story would have succeeded and worked. Now, five years later, someone would have undone it anyway. Right. And that would have been fun, too. But I think it would have made for a great ride for Spider-Man. Right. Um, but the problem, as I recall it, was that it kept getting dragged out, and initially it kept getting dragged out because, again, this is my recollection, and someone else may have different recollections, but it was directives were coming from the sales department. Right. Keep it going. Keep it going. This is good. You know, the sales are going up. Keep it going, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was also at a very chaotic time for Marvel. Um, you know, Marvel kept getting sold every five minutes. <laughs> People were getting fired left and right on staff. Yeah. Um, uh, they started that five editor in chief madness happened, yep. 
you know, and suddenly Bob Budiansky, who I, I've known and worked with for years, great guy, came in and, and he was the he was the Spider-Man uh, executive editor, you know, over Danny's head. So things were very very chaotic there at the time while we were trying to create the story. And then in the middle of all that, they're saying, you know, continue the story, <laughs> keep it going, keep it going. Um, yeah. So and then you know, I at a certain point I left because I just got tired of writing chapter two. No, no doubt. And, uh, <laughs> and it went on and it went on and on and on after that. Right. I mean, it seemed, you know, it probably only went on for two years, but it felt like it went on for like, you know, thousands of years. Right. I I remember that this, my recollection works. Yeah. Most all Marvel books were not selling very well in the late '90s or the mid '90s, but the Clone Saga was, and that's what. The clone, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know overall what was happening, yeah. but the Clone Saga sales were very healthy, yeah. and, I, and I believe sales went up. And then what happened was. The whole market took it. Right. Thank that was when, you know, whatever the, those collectors or whoever those people were that were driving sales through the roof and making us all very rich mm-hmm. went away. And so sales on everything right. dropped tremendously. But with, as I recall, within that context of sales dropping, the Spider-Man sales were still healthy. Right. You know, and I think what, you know, really what happened after that was just, you know, editorial changes and, and people not sure what to do, you know, because the guys that originally conceived it weren't all there. And it was like, right. should we do this? Should we do that? Should we change this? Should we change that? And I know that after I left, it, you know, it, it dragged on and on and on and on. And everybody, you know, trying to put it together and figure out what to do right. Everyone did their best and everyone got really, really large headaches. <laughs> and you know, to this day, uh, people still love that Ben Riley character. Did you create him or yeah. how, did, how did Ben Riley come about? You know, well, we 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 needed we needed the the clone. So right. I mean, so basically, we had a character. The question was, who and what is this character right. going to be? I think Danny Fingeroth and, and his assistant Eric Fine may have come up with the name Ben Riley. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben for Uncle Ben and Riley for Aunt May's maiden name. Right. Although I think I might have been the first one to use the name. I'm not quite sure. Okay. But but Danny Danny and Eric I think cooked up the name. Um, he was a phenomenal character because he was Peter, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. Right. And, and I have to say, with all the chaos of the Clone Saga, uh, the, the Lost Years miniseries that I did with Ramita Jr., um, which explored Ben's backstory, one of my favorite, favorite Spider-Man stories I've ever done, because it, he's just a great character. Mm-hmm. The character of Kane, I think, is one of the best Spider-Man villains ever. Right. Um, and the problem when, the, when they finally like wrapped up the Clone Saga was that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They just wanted to, like... Take everything that happened in the Clone Saga, dig a hole, throw it in the ground, and cement it over. <laughs> exactly. And so I think they lost a lot of great stuff. They lost because the plan after I wrote that first um, Lost Years miniseries, I said, you know, guys, and maybe maybe it wasn't my idea, but I I think it was. You know, we we can do, this can be a regular series. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, it's five years uh, uh, Marvel time. You know, twenty years comic book time. There's so many Ben Riley stories that you can tell about his life on the road. In those years that he was out there on his own, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Riley and Kane and, and Janine, his girlfriend, and all these things that went on, um, it was just a great character, fertile ground for great, great stories. And and they could have had another really successful Spider-Man book that was Spider-Man and yet not. You mm-hmm. could have even kept uh, Peter as Spider-Man and still done a Ben Riley mm-hmm. series that I think would have been hugely successful. I think even to this day it would be successful because every yeah. Spider-Man website you go to, every message board. Even we're still talking about it ten, fifteen years later. Ben yeah, Riley yeah. clones. <laughs> great, great character, yeah. and and Kane. I, the original conception for Kane, I think, came from Howard Mackey. Mm-hmm. But I got to really take the character and explore him in in the Lost Years right. miniseries, you know, and really sort of uh, uh, you know, Howard created the foundation, and I got to put some meat on the bone. You, you should pitch that tomorrow, yeah. uh, Spider-Man: The Lost Years, <laughs> written by you. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was. I was so looking forward to doing more yeah. Lost Years stories, and then I did. I did a thing with Mike Zek called Spider-Man Redemption sometime later, mm-hmm. which originally was planned as another Lost Years miniseries. And and you know, Glenn Greenberg could tell the saga far better than I because he has all this notes. Right. But it was one of those things where you know, we, uh, apparently I was pitching the story, and then something would come down from editorial, and then we had to change it, and then we'd fix it, and then we'd change it. So what it ended up being by the end was was not what was originally conceived, and most of it, as I recall, took place in the present day, and it ended up actually being the last big Ben Riley story before they killed right. him. And you said uh, so, you got tired of writing part two, and you yeah, yeah, you eventually went back to spec spectacular again. I did because the same right. thing happened. It was like 
I miss Spider-Man. <laughs> you know? but, but I have to be honest, I think it, it was a nice run on spec the second time around, <laughs> but I think I kind of stayed too long at the fair. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, by the end, I was I was getting a little weary, but, I, but you know, I think Luke Ross was doing the art really, really good, and he's, he's you know, this is when he was first starting. Right. He was good then. He's evolved into just an amazing artist from what I've seen in his recent work. Right. Um, and we did some we did some fun stuff. Uh, I had a fun with the um, who was it the Jack O' Lantern, Mad Jack, that whole story. The Legion of Losers. You can't forget those guys. Legion, got to do a lot of funny stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with the Legion of Losers and the White Rabbit and bringing back the Frogman. And uh, I think we brought back the Frogman in there somewhere. I think so. Yeah. Um, and then you know the Mad Jack story and the story with Craven's son and the story with the Chameleon. So there was a lot of fun stuff there. Mm-hmm. But it reached a point after maybe uh, a year or so where I thought, you know what? I've done this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, 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 the well is beginning to run dry, and I might have stayed for a few issues too long there. <laughs> and um, yeah. But again, looking back, there were some some really great stories. I know people still ask me about. So so who was Mad Jack? What was the <laughs> what was the secret? What was the, the answer to the mystery? Yeah. Um, and so it was a good run, uh, but I don't I don't hold it in the same esteem that I hold my run with Sal on stuff. Yeah. And with the brief uh, three parter and web spinners, you you haven't touched the character since Amazing Spider-Man Family number one. Is, am I, I mean, until until Amazing until Spider-Man. until number one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did, I haven't touched it since Amazing Spider-Man Family number one, which came out this week. <laughs> this week, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, that was just you know that it was funny because once I was done, I didn't you know and, and I did I got to do I did that web spinner story and more important there was a ten page story I got to do with John Romita Senior called The Kiss, which uh, uh, again one of my favorite favorite stories that I've ever I'm done. I'm trying to remember which one was that one. It was it was Peter looking back on his last night with. Glenn oh Jason. oh, you wrote that one. I love that one. That was a great story. Yeah, and and a I loved the story, but b what I really loved was getting to work with John Romita Senior. Oh yeah, that was. I mean, there there he was all those years after after that run of the Spider-Man that I was reading in junior high school, mm-hmm. and he was better than ever, yeah. just better than ever. What a what a what a what a gift to get to work with him. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, but yeah, but then after that, I was pretty much done. I you know things things one you know you're a freelancer, you go through phases, and you're one company, and then things go sour for a variety of reasons. So things went south at Marvel, mm-hmm. and I was pretty done with Spider-Man anyway. And that was it. And after that, really, when people would say, so you want to write any more Spider-Man, but someone would be interviewing me, and I'd say, you know, <laughs> I don't think I even have a Spider-Man idea in my head. <laughs> uh, I said just about everything I could possibly say about the character. Yeah. And what happened was, I guess, last summer, I forget what the reason was. It was one of those things. Was, everywhere I looked, there was something about Spider-Man popping up in my face. <laughs> and I was thinking, mm, you know, first time I felt like I kind of missed the character a little bit. Yeah. And I said, out right of the blue, I, I knew Steve Wacker from when he was at DC, so I just sent Steve Wacker an email and said, I had an urge to write a Spider-Man story. I said, so go write a Spider-Man story. So it was just, you know, it was just a one-part, 22-page story. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I make no claims for it being earth-shattering or one of the greatest Spider-Man stories ever told, <laughs> you know. It's just a nice little story. And what was fun about it for me was that it takes place in the very, very beginning of Spider-Man's career. It's literally... The two days immediately, you know, after Uncle Ben's death. Mm-hmm. So I'm used to writing that older, more mature, married Spider-Man. You're not used to the kid. Yeah, like, the kid. <laughs> this is this is really a kid yeah. who does not know what the hell's going on, and his uncle's just been killed, and can't figure. He doesn't, you know, doesn't even really know how to spin a web or, you know, uh, swing on a flagpole. <laughs> let alone how much. So so just you know, just because you have these powers doesn't make you a hero. Yeah. You know, if I if I was bitten by a radioactive spider and could climb walls. And, and, you know, somebody said, with great power comes great responsibility, go be a hero. <laughs> um, I'd be scared to death. Right, no kidding. That's... And that's what this story deals with. Yeah. You know, it deals with, well, how do I do this? What do I do? There's a the point at the end where, you know, he has to go into this burning building and rescue people. And he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> mommy, help me, he, Mommy. <laughs> or Aunt May. And when he, finally, when he finally, you know, comes out at the end, he stops on some roof, he takes up his mask, and he throws his guts up. Yeah, no kidding. Scared to that's death. what everybody would do. Because he's, exactly. he's the most relatable hero. So. Right, right. Yeah. So that was what was the fun, the fun of this little story was, was to, to, to get familiar with, with young yeah. Uh, young Peter, and it was such a, the same character, and yet a very, very different character. So, that was so it was a it was yeah. a ten year break between uh, nineteen ninety eight to two thousand eight. So, yeah. are you getting a taste for him back? Or are you wanting to write some more Spider Man? You know, well, I am writing a little bit more. Okay. Um, 
I'm actually working on one right now. Just in a, it'll probably also end up in Amazing Spider-Man Family. It's a little two-parter. Also set very, very early with the young Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, also de- just dealing with the idea of, okay, so I've got these powers, but you know, just because you have these powers doesn't mean you know what to do with them. And, and, and the idea behind this story, without giving too much away, is we see these characters beating the crap out of each other all the time. Right, you know? right. Uh, and, you know, I, I've just become a superhero, and I'm going to go fight a villain, and I'm going to you know, punch a bank robber. But think about the strength that Peter has. And think about really in the real world what one punch could do to somebody. Right. And that's what the story is about. Really, the first time that he that he hauls off and hits somebody, and the ramifications of that act. Because mm. um, we, 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 you know, one of the things that drives me crazy. I love, obviously, I love superheroes, or I wouldn't have been doing them for so many years. But one of the things that drives me crazy about them is 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 the sort of mindless violence factor, and how we sort of take for granted. Uh, this part of the genre that you know all all problems are solved by dropping a building on somebody's head or punching their face in, right. um, and and this story really uh, is is a way to look at that and and see okay yeah we see these, these, these Spider-Man punching people all the time let's take one single punch and explore the ramifications of that so it's going to yeah. be I think a two-part story two 15-page stories that will run in in the Spider-Man family right. or wherever Steve Wacker decides to put it right. um, so it, it should it should be an interesting story. But am I, am I on fire to write tons more Spider-Man stories? No, no, not necessarily. Um, you know, Steve, Steve sent me an email recently and said, how about a White Rabbit story? You know? <laughs> and I figured anybody who's crazy enough to ask me to write a White Rabbit story, I might as well write no it. No doubt. <laughs> Hit up the Frogman, too. <laughs> right, of course, yeah, Frogman has to be in there somewhere. But in terms of, like, do I, no, do I, you know, I, like, I think if someone said, offered me a regular Spider-Man book, I, I don't think, I don't, I've done it. You yeah. know, I, I, I've been there, done that. I don't know if I have any any grand statements to make about it, which is why, you know, like I said, the story that's an amazing Spider-Man family I think is a really nice story. But, you know, I'm not trying to sell it as like, and here's the story you must read because it will change Spider-Man forever or you've never read a story like this before or anything like that. Just a good, solid story. Yeah. And any uh, do we have any pencilers lined up for this upcoming uh, Amazing Spider-Man family that you're going to be working with? The one, the one, the story I'm writing Yes. Now? No, that's, that's – that's, that's, We'll figure that out, I guess, okay. once the script and, is done. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just halfway through the okay. first part. And would probably uh, 2009 it'll come out or 2000? I would guess so. Okay. Yeah, I, I have, I have no clue. I'm just writing. You're it just writing it. <laughs> just writing it and having fun and yeah. trying to figure out how it's going to yeah. end. Before we uh, break for the second hour, any, any other future Marvel work that we can look forward to from you? No, no, there's nothing else going on at Marvel right now. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on other things. I just signed a deal to write a to write a novel for Harper, HarperCollins. Okay. So I'm working on that, uh, a young adult fantasy novel. I'm very, very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Been doing a bunch of, a uh, bunch more animation because I've done a bunch of animation over the years. I've been writing for the new Batman: Brave and the Bold animated series. Oh, nice. Um, got a bunch of comic book things in the work. Uh, the, the biggest one is a project I'm doing for IDW called The Life and Times of Savior 28, which uh, deals with just what we're talking about—the whole question of superheroes and violence. Yeah. And and what does that really mean, and how does that really affect the world? It's a story I have wanted to do literally for more than 20 years. Nice. And I'm working with a phenomenal artist named Mike Caballero. That'll be out next year. And also, I am uh, working these days as editor in chief of a new co- new comic book company called Arden Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And we have got our first issue of Flash Gordon coming out on Wednesday. Nice, nice. So there you go. So look, uh... that's just some of the things. I got a lot a lot of stuff going on right now, but. Uh, in terms of Marvel, no, nothing, nothing else. And we'll wrap up the conversation right about there, a little after the hour mark. We have one more final hour with JMD, where we answer your message board questions. Now, before we go, I want to thank MailOrderComics.com for sponsoring the show. If you'd like to check out some of DiMatteis's work, one book you'll discover is his Batman Absolution soft cover. The cover price is $17.95, and Mail Order has it for $11.12. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com. Gang, I'm Brad Douglas, and thanks for listening and visiting the SpiderManCrawlspace.com.